to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. This week's show guest is Kim Iskian, who is the publisher at Stansbury Churchhouse Research. Kim spent more than the past 25 years exploring and analyzing global markets. He's been a director of research for a large emerging market investment bank, a hedge fund manager, and also an advisor for Fortune 50 companies on political risk. Kim has lived and worked in 10 countries, including Spain, Russia, Sri Lanka, and the United States, and he now lives in Singapore. Kim, welcome to the show. Hey, Jay, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, that we can connect and you can get back on the show. And um, and uh, I'm excited to, to catch up and hear about uh, all the cool stuff that you're working on. But before we do that, uh, I think the my introduction there actually didn't do justice because you have probably one of the most diverse backgrounds uh, that, that I know of. And I, I thought I had a diverse background because I grew up overseas as well. But uh, you definitely uh, far surpassed me. So maybe you could give our audience a little bit of... Uh, your background, you know, where you came from and how you came up and uh, how you became an investor. Great. I uh, I was born in the USJ and moved around. Um, I've lived in 10 states in the US in total. But when I was uh, when I was a kid, I moved to Spain. I grew up in, uh, in Madrid. Um, and my mother is uh, from the Netherlands. And we traveled around a whole lot in Europe as I was growing up. And then I went to college and grad school in the US. And I wound up going to the former Soviet Union and lived in uh, Armenia. I lived in Russia for nine years. I worked for a few investment banks and I ran a hedge fund there, as you mentioned. Uh, I lived in Kyrgyzstan. I lived in uh, Sri Lanka and Mexico for a while in the Netherlands. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, it's, it's kind of funny over time, you uh, boundaries and, and barriers and, and borders kind of blur and it's uh, the world is seamless in a lot of ways, especially now with technology and and depending on the passport you have, travel. And I think uh, you know just to, to wind this back around to being an investor, I think that as an investor, when you start to see borders, um, it's only going to hurt you because money flows everywhere. And if you view the entire world as your potential investment platform. And you, to the extent possible, you you ignore nationality and culture and language. I think you're uh, you're going to be a long a long way ahead of uh, of most people who gets who get kind of caught up in all sorts of issues that are kind of irrelevant to investing. Right. I think that's uh, yeah, that's that's very very true. Um, and and we'll talk uh, about that more in depth. I know that you're you talk about it a lot um, and trying to get out of that sort of home country bias that a lot of people, you know, especially in the West, have. Uh, particularly in, in the U.S., I know for a fact that they do. Kim, I'm just curious. So you you mentioned you you spent some time in Madrid. So I gather that you speak Spanish. Um, and then you you said you uh, also were educated in the states. Um, so when uh, how, how how what was it uh, army? You know, I, I get the same question because I lived uh, abroad a lot. Was it like a military background, or was it just an uh, international family that you have? No, you know, it's kind of funny. My uh, my dad, as a college student in the uh, in the early '60s, he traveled around. He was he was American, but he traveled around Europe, and he liked uh, Spain a whole lot. So years later, he was a, uh, a nuclear engineer. Um, he was a safety, uh, he looked at safety systems for nuclear power plants. 
And in the U.S., the nuclear power industry was contracting um, in the 70s, and then that was accelerated with uh, Three Mile Island, the Three Mile Island accidents in 1979. So he had to pretty much go where the work was. And Spain's nuclear power industry was just evolving. Um, so he said, well, let me see if I can find a job in Spain. So we wound up uh, moving to Madrid. And it was... Um, you know, it's funny, Spain now is very much integrated as part of it. It's European, both in fact and, and, and geographically. But at the time when I lived there, it was uh, the expression was that Europe ended at the Pyrenees and <laughs> Spain was, strictly speaking, part of Europe, but it was not part of the EU until the late 80s. And it was uh, really a developing country in a lot of ways. Um, so it's, uh, it's, kind of, it's extraordinary how countries develop and how the perceptions of countries can develop over just a few decades. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think uh, when we first connected uh, last year, I think uh, we had a conversation uh, about myself. I also grew up overseas in Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, uh, before this Aramco IPO, like no one had ever really even thought about it <laughs> since the Gulf War. You know, I mean, people kind of forgot about that. And then all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, Saudi Aramco. All oh, right. Uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, but I definitely think that it had an influence on me uh, being able to travel over overseas and internationally. And I, I imagine it's the same for you. What uh, took you to the Soviet Union? Did you spend any time on Wall Street first and then take a job over there? Or was it straight out of the gates? No, it was, uh, you know, I, I studied Latin American history in graduate school. And then I did the logical thing and moved to New York and got a job on Wall Street. <laughs> and <laughs> my, my hook was that I spoke Spanish. Right. And Latin American stock markets uh, in the mid-90s were just taking off. So I uh, wandered around and met people and, and called up uh, alumni from uh, the university where I went to and said, hey, can you meet me for, for a cup of coffee? And I eventually found a job as a sales assistant at a mid-tier investment bank um, on the sales desk for Latin American institutional equity sales and just learn one thing, you know, one, how these things go. You're in the middle of it. You learn a whole lot and you learn a lot more than if you had spent two years um, you know, trying to get an MBA or, or studying finance or whatever. And it was all learn as you go. Right. And from there, to address your question, I wound up uh, hooking up with a contract with the U.S. government because the U.S. government in the late 90s was, or I'm sorry, mid, mid to late 90s was looking at the former Soviet Union and said, well, gosh, they just escaped communism. We have to be sure that they don't go back to communism. So why don't we create stock markets in some of the countries of the former Soviet Union since as part of the privatization process, employees of, of factories and, and companies had been given privatization vouchers. That is, mm -hmm. all these companies had been state-owned. And then one day they said, guess what? The state no longer exists in that way. So you, Mr. and Mrs. Factory Worker, you own part of this company now. Well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah. So Uncle Sam went in and said, hey, why don't we... Uh, why don't we create a venue for these new shareholders to be able to trade their shares? And um, so I went to a, a country called Kyrgyzstan in, uh, in Central Asia that borders northwest um, China and is south of Kazakhstan to, uh, to help build a stock market. That's pretty, uh, wow. Yeah. It, was, uh, no, it was exciting. It was extraordinary. And I've wandered through, you know, really, uh, Kyrgyzstan, you can barely find on a map. And we're talking 20, year, 20 plus years ago. Um, 
to make a phone call, you had to call the operator first. And then the, <laughs> the operator could make the phone call for you. It was that kind of place. And I went to the most remote places of one of the more remote countries in the world to uh, sit down with, with factory uh, managers who, you know, in their office, they had a huge picture of Lenin. So this guy's sitting on a picture of a portion of Lenin. I'm telling him about a stock market and why he should list his company's shares on a stock market. It was, uh, I didn't quite appreciate it at the time, but it was a uh, pretty surreal. That is incredible. Was there, was there any sort of safety concerns that you had when you were doing this work? No, no. Kyrgyzstan is, uh, it was, no, it wasn't really a factor. It was peaceful and, um, they subsequently went through two revolutions in the span of eight or 10 years. Uh, but this was well before that. And it was a beautiful, nice country. Um, the, uh, the stock market still exists. I, I visited a couple of years ago, uh, but it doesn't have much volume as you might guess. Right. Uh, and then from there I went to, uh, on a different contract, I went to Moscow on a world bank contract. Um, and the Russian stock market was taking off. And wow. I knew just enough about the world of finance from <laughs> my <laughs> two years on Wall Street. And, right. <laughs> uh, just enough about that part of the world from my year plus in, uh, in Kyrgyzstan and Russia. So I got a job with a local brokerage house. And that was, you know, Jay, there's some, some times in, in history where you're at the right place at the right time with just the right combination of skills. And you're very fortunate that everything comes together. Right. Because with the skills I had, if I had been in New York, I would have been, you know, I would have been a, some junior junior analyst wherever in some boring investment bank cubicle farm. But in <laughs> Moscow, I could string together a sentence in English. I could perform basic financial analysis. I could speak some Russian, and I was golden in relative terms. Right. So, uh, yeah, so I wound up being there for nine years and uh, worked for a few investment banks and was head of research for a while for one of them. Um, and, uh, and then I later on lived in Armenia when my, uh, well, I met my wife in Moscow and then her job took us to Armenia and I'm of Armenian descent. My last name is Armenian. Oh, really? Okay. I, I was going to ask you, uh, uh, but I was going to ask you offline what, <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> I, I, I was wondering what, what, uh, what Iskian was, uh, there you go. Okay. It's very cool. Do you, do you still have relatives there or is it long? No, no. The, uh, the history of Armenia was, uh. A lot of people of Armenian descent, they lost their relatives there in the genocide in 1915 right. through 1918. And my uh, great-great-grandfather actually fled well before then. Mm. So, uh, And he fled what is now sort of uh, uh, eastern Turkey. Um, so, no, is a short answer. But, but uh, one of the cool things about countries like that is you go back and you say, hey, you know what? My great-grandfather left. And they say, oh, you've come home. Right. <laughs> and even though I'm kind of light and I have blue eyes and Armenians are kind of swarthy and Mediterranean looking, they still say, Oh no, no, you're just like one of us. You're actually the, the, before Armenians became dark haired and dark complexion, they were light. So you're one of the original Armenians. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very cool. So. Very cool. Um, so, uh, Spain, uh, Russia, or U.S. for a bit, uh, Russia, Armenia, all these places that you've lived in, now Singapore. Which one's your favorite? Uh, you know, I mean, I know that's hard to, to say, but is there one place that just stuck out at you, um, uh, Think looking back? You know, I think a lot of that has to do with what you're doing and where you are in your life. Mm. And I had a fantastic time in Moscow because it was an incredibly dynamic time. And 
everything was changing and, and the country didn't really know where it was going. And it was hugely exciting. Um, but I was young and uh, wasn't married, didn't have kids. And it would be a very different proposition. It was a very different proposition when I was married with kids years later. Uh, right, sure. A whole lot, just much more difficult, a huge, dirty city where it's cold six months out of the year. And then, uh, you know, I, I think uh, to answer your question, I think Sri Lanka would probably have to, uh, to, uh, to take the crown. It's, um, Sri Lanka is a beautiful country, uh, incredibly diverse. It's remote, just this little island to the south of India. Um, but it's incredibly diverse in terms of culture, in terms of geography. The food is amazing. Um, I really loved it there. I think, uh, but again, with kids, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, yeah, so so it's all about Um, some different things, you know, very cool background. Uh, I, and I totally agree with you. I think, uh, you know, when I was younger, I spent, uh, I spent a year in Tokyo. Um, I was on a, I was working at Lehman brothers and they sent me over there for a year and it was, you know, I was, I was career wise. I was, I was just a scrub. I was an analyst and, and, um, you know, I was a nobody, but I think it was just the time of my life. Uh, you know, I was young, I was single and, uh, I just had a good time. And, uh, I always, I always have fond memories when I go back there, but, um, so, okay. So, um, let's, uh, ha, ha, so, so tell us, I mean, now obviously you have a family and, and you're living in a first world country, <laughs> uh, the city state of Singapore, which is, which is, uh, which is also one of my favorite cities. My wife, I absolutely love Singapore because now that we have kids, it's very, very kid friendly. Um, you know, I live in Hong Kong and you know how it is up here. It's all hustle and bustle and very kid unfriendly. So, uh, she goes there every, every summer actually for about a month with the kids. <laughs> um, so what led you down there and, uh, and what, uh, what are you working on these days currently? Well, about uh, five years ago, I um, we moved to the U.S. and I was looking for uh, for something interesting to do. And I got in touch with um, an independent investment research firm and newsletter publisher called uh, Stansbury Research. And mm-hmm. I'd been in touch with them before and spoken with them. And I said, uh, "Well, I'm back. I'd love to uh, work for you." And they said, "Well, we'd like somebody to write." A publication that looks at out of favor markets around the world um, and to find different investment angles. And I said, I'm your guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I went to uh, you know places everywhere from Venezuela to Iran to Macau um, to Argentina uh, to Kazakhstan and uh, wander around, talk to people, found some sort of investable angle if there was one or said, look, this place is off the radar and it's off the radar for good reason. Um, and, uh, then after uh, a few years, um, we decided, well, we, we, uh, we're going to leave the U S because we didn't need to live there anymore after my wife quit her job. Um, and Stansbury said, well, we were thinking of developing a business in Asia. Would right. you be interested in, in uh, helping us out? And I said, fantastic. So I came to Singapore to develop um, an investment research firm that's really focused on uh, publishing investment newsletters for individual investors uh, in Asia, as well as people in the rest of the world who are interested in investing in Asia and better understanding the uh, investment potential and opportunities in this part of the world. I think that, uh, yeah, so, so for the audience listening in, I think that, uh, you know, and I'm, uh, Kim, I'm new to financial publishing myself. Uh, you know, I, I actually didn't know anything about it until maybe two years ago because 
having come up through the sort of the institutional side of things, uh, you don't really get that exposed to it, especially not out here in Asia. I think maybe if you're in the US, you, you're probably quite familiar with, um, you know, Stansbury is quite a household name as is, you know, Agora Financial and, and the likes. But, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't really heard of it. And um, when I started learning about it, uh, it was just it was eye opening because, uh, basically, uh, you get, um, like you said, you get, uh, you get all this great research, um, from sort of uh, like institutional caliber research that, uh, any sort of individual can access through a newsletter. And it's, it's great specifically. And I think that your value proposition proposition being sort of in Asia and being a global guy, I think it's much stronger. You know, if I was sitting in the U S I don't think I would, care to subscribe to uh, another U.S. Uh, stock newsletter. But for people that might be sitting in the U.S. and they just want to know what's going on overseas, I think it's a, it's a tremendous uh, value proposition. So um, so what are the different types of uh, publications that you guys have? Well, I think, uh, Jay, just to add what you just said, I think that the, the whole value proposition also is that individual investors are... Uh, are at a pretty big disadvantage anywhere in the world because they, uh, well, on the one hand, you have technology. And in the past 10, 15 years, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people said, well, you know, with technology and with the ability to, to be able to access, you know, financial reports and research and news so easily, it's kind of leveled the playing field for institutions and individuals. So as an individual, I have access to all sorts of information that 15 years ago, would have taken me days to to put together, right. um, but I, but I think that kind of ignores the other side of of technology, and that's everything from algorithms to uh, the sheer human manpower that institutions can put to work uh, for analysis. And despite technology, I think when you look at how an individual investor who's not a professional investor, he he or she is, you know, someone with a day job who doesn't have all day to devote to his investments. It's, uh, right. it's kind of like playing on the JV team and saying, okay, you're playing against, uh, you're playing in the NBA now. Um, <laughs> there's really, that's a good analogy actually. <laughs> it's, uh, there's a huge disadvantage. So what we try to do at uh, Stansbury church house research and what Stansbury research tries to do too, is to go to individual, individual investors and say, look, we can help you kind of bridge the gap and understand some of the things that, that some of the language, some of the terminology, some of the context, because if you open up the Wall Street Journal today, you can learn all sorts of things, but unless you understand the context of it uh, and what it all means, how it all kind of fits together, you look at inflation figures and you look at, you know, political issues and you look at macroeconomic data and you say, okay, but what does that mean? Um, and I think that's the tricky thing. And that's where we try to piece all together and say, okay, this is what it all means. And these are some investment ideas that you, Mr. or Mrs. Individual Investor can use to, to capitalize on this and try to make money yourself. Um, so we have a, uh, we have a, a free daily e-letter uh, where every day we, we talk about personal finance and issues in the investing world and economics. And then we have a, uh, an investment newsletter called the church house letter that addresses um, different markets in Asia. And we have investment recommendations that are mostly ADRs also Hong Kong listed securities. Um, that's, uh, and it's around $99 a year. It's an inexpensive, mm. uh, product. Then we have a product that I write, it's called international capitalist where, uh, I look at different markets around the world. Um, 
and stocks that are uh, out of favor or that you wouldn't hear of otherwise or that are disregarded for some reason what because of of the sort of business they're in or because management is out of favor or the country is kind of off the radar and i often go to some of these countries to uh to check them out to uh, to see whether the perception that uh they're not good places to invest really matches with reality and then we have a uh third product is a cryptocurrency product where uh where we look at different cryptocurrency opportunities around um, in the in the market. Yeah, so I think it's a it's a it's a great uh, sort of uh, menu that you guys offer. You know, you you um, Peter, uh, I guess your partner there, um, and it, and it's his son that does the the, the crypto newsletter. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Simon Churchhouse. Yes. Yeah. And um, so yeah, so I think it's a it's a great uh, sort of blend there that you have, um, and you you kind of get all you know well you know crypto is obviously very <laughs> hot these days but even just the church house letter and and what you do um uh with your newsletter there i think you get a very good coverage uh, base of coverage of of, of international markets so on your on your on your product specifically um and uh and i and and i i read a copy of it <laughs> and it was very good and i was uh, I, I enjoyed it i enjoyed it what um tell us a little bit about how you uh, what, what's your sort of methodology when you go find these sort of uh, out of favor, maybe looking for that asymmetrical bet, um, maybe going off the beaten path where someone might not be um, inclined to go to or, you know, looking under rocks, this sort of thing and finding these great trades. How do you, is there a certain framework that you begin with and, and follow through to find these trades? Well, I think I'd call myself a, uh, a global opportunist. Um, I think that there is always going to be in the world, there's going to be a market, there's going to be a sector, there's going to be a stock that for some reason um, is going through a rough patch. And uh, as we all know, rough patches, they can go on for a while, but when they end, they end. And it takes a little while for investors, for markets, for perception to catch up with the change reality. Um, And I far prefer to find something that's out of favor where only a few things have to go right and the share price will double or triple than right. go someplace and find something that is in favor and everybody's throwing money at it. And if everything goes perfectly, it'll rise another 10%. Um, <laughs> and if one thing goes wrong, it falls by 50%. So, um, but, you know, I think I'd, I would distinguish, I'm not, I don't really like the term contrarian. I think right. contrarian, people who say oh, I'm a contrarian, uh, for one thing, they're not <laughs> because... <laughs> Uh, so few people really are. And I, I think that also few people should be because there's a certain reflexive attitude that if everybody likes it, I don't like it. And if nobody right. likes it, I like it. And you know what? The fact of the matter is, is just that often if something is out of favor, it deserves to be out of favor. Um, you know, right. about four years ago, I went to, I, I mentioned Venezuela, which at the time was in the throes of, of post Chavez chaos. And I thought, you know, this is interesting. And at some point, this will be very interesting, but um, I don't think yet. And then sure enough, it's still in the throes of chaos, far, far worse <laughs> four years later. So I met, I met a, a few people there at the time um, who had been on Wall Street, who had quit. They were of, of uh, Venezuelan descent or grown up in Venezuela. And they had gone back home because they said, you know what, I want to be here when things change. And at some point, things are going to change and assets will be so cheap in this country and it'll be amazing. 
And you know what? I'll bet those people are still there, still waiting for that day four years later. <laughs> um, so anyway, to, to get back to your question, um, I, I really look for uh, opportunities anywhere in the world um, where uh, assets are out of favor, where assets are cheap for some reason, but where there is a clear catalyst for something to, uh, to change. You bring up a very good point, actually, a very interesting point and a very, uh, a very good point in that uh, to a certain degree, you know, markets are very efficient. And so, like you said, if something is is priced cheap, then there's probably a very good reason for it. And you're probably not this genius that's found, uncovered this <laughs> hidden gem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that a lot of, uh, you know, maybe um, less experienced uh, investors, they, they, they'll commonly fall for that. I mean, look, everyone wants to try to find that hidden gem or that asymmetrical bet. And and, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot harder than most people think. Uh, so um, I think that's, that's quite interesting. As far as, um, uh, you know, is, when you look at sort of exotic locations, let's say, um, how do you screen? Uh, what's, your, what's your initial screening? I mean, uh, I mean the world is, is huge. There must be, are there a handful of countries that you're friendly with that you have local c- contacts with that, that you, are your sort of go-to uh, hunting grounds? Yeah, I look for, um, uh, well, first I do look for company, uh, for countries where markets are fundamentally cheap um, and or where when you read about them, uh, you only read bad stuff or, <laughs> or you don't read about them at all. And you say, well, gosh, I've, uh, I know of this country, but I never hear anything about it. What's up with that? Um, and yeah, there are some countries where I, you know, I, I spent so much time in Russia and I still... I was a, an analyst there, so I was very familiar with a lot of the companies for a long time, and I still have a pretty good handle on uh, on a lot of different dimensions of the market. Um, but I've worked in a number of, of markets, visited a lot of markets, and you know, you you read different things, you talk to different people, and at some point, someone says, "Hey, you know, I'm really looking at this." And it's funny, sometimes I, I just, I start to dig into an idea and just something kind of clicks. And I think, yes, this idea makes a lot of sense. And it takes a lot of the boxes that you're looking to tick in terms of valuation, in terms of sort of public profile, in terms of trajectory and what the business is doing in terms of management. And maybe something was wrong with management. It's been replaced. Maybe something was just askew with the entire business model and that's been changed with some dimension where there's been a shift and that can be both on a, on a company level as well as on a country level. Um, and looking for those sorts of, of step changes that take time to develop and take time to evolve. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some of the different things that I, uh, that I look for. Very interesting. Um, I, I, you know, we had, uh, it, it's, it's, it, I, I, I love, I love what you're doing because, um, it's, it's sort of the, the type of thing that a lot of people wish they can go out and do, but most people, a can't, they, they don't, they, well, they're not probably, they're not, they're too chicken to go to these countries and actually do the research or B, they just don't have the network or contacts or wherewithal to actually execute. So I think it's pretty cool. And that's why you have this great international capitalist newsletter where you do all the work and we just, we can just uh, pay the fee and, and come along for the ride, which I think is great. Um, now the, the letter, um, it's, uh, I, I, I imagine that the, it's like a, closed subscription at the moment, but you're going to open that up pretty soon uh, for if listeners are interested. Yes. Yes. We will be opening that up uh, quite soon for, uh, uh, for subscriptions in, um, 
Yeah, in in uh, mid May. And what what sort of um, is there? Are there actual actual trade recommendations that uh, a subscriber might get, or is it more of just sort of uh, field research type stuff? Oh no, there there are definitely trade there are investment recommendations. A lot of the issue is talking about um, yeah reviewing a uh, a stock and right. explaining the context and you know like like you would find normally only there's stocks that you're not going to see in a lot of other investment newsletters that I, i'd be willing to bet because right. they're in markets that are like i said markets that are off the radar or out of favor um i can give you a well, one example of of the sort of thing that i'd like to do i went to uh, a few months ago i visited bangladesh and bangladesh is a country that you you know if you hear about it it's usually because it's being flooded or because they just had a horrible garment factory fire uh i think those wow. are probably the two reasons that <laughs> and all people ever hear about bangladesh um but bangladesh is actually it's uh well for one thing it has about half the population population of the united states so it's an enormous uh country in terms of population but it's geographically the size of uh it's the size of iowa uh which is, you know, about the size of Nepal. So it's right. extremely small. And you have all these people packed in there. And it's a country that's very poor. So it's starting from a low base. But for literally the past 20 years, it's had growth of somewhere between 5% and 7%, regardless of, of international or global financial crises or anything else. So it's been growing, like, uh, uh, really very fast from wow. a low base, like I said. Um, It's an incredibly difficult place to do business. The, uh, the World Bank uh, does a, uh, a survey about how easy it is to do business in different countries. And Bangladesh ranks 176th out of 190 countries. <laughs> and, uh, and the capital is periodically uh, rated the least livable city in the world. Uh, <laughs> nice. So I'm, I'm sorry, I met some people of Bengali descent who had grown up in Vancouver, which I guess is often ranked as the best place in the right. world to live. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they were talking about, about moving from the best place in the world to the worst <laughs> place in the world. Um, and, you know, Dhaka is not, it, it's, uh, it's not at all an easy place to get around. And it's, uh, but it's a fascinating country and it's growing so rapidly. And one of the interesting things, if you look at a country at, large countries and you think that are developing you think okay this country needs needs highways it needs power it needs um it needs trains it needs all this sort of infrastructure and it's a big country so if you build a highway it has to go a long way and one of the one of the strange competitive advantages of bangladesh is that it is so small so if you want to put up cell phone towers You don't need a million of them because it's a relatively small country and you don't have to have them spread out everywhere. And if you're building a highway, you can build a relatively small highway and you're connecting the entire country. Right. You're not building a highway across Russia. Um, so in terms of development and distribu distribution channels, you can really see how a country like Bangladesh can, uh, it has some slightly uh, unusual advantages. And because things are such a mess in so many ways, in my mind, Uh, but the country is still growing so fast. If it got a few other things right, and if instead of being 176th out of 190 countries, if it was somehow <laughs> able to scramble up to 120th, right. that would be an enormous, an enormous change. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it's one of those places that you don't hear about much. But if I had 
$10,000 that I w- was looking to put away somewhere and not think about for the next 20 years. Right. Because this is going to be a country that's going to grow for by 7% per year for the next right. 20 years easily. Um, and, you know, economic growth is not always translated into stock market growth for reasons sure. that we're all very familiar with. But if you have that sort of wind at your back um, and that sort of patience, Bangladesh is, I think, a, a very exciting place. Now, you can only, unless you are ready to be uh, really adventuresome and, and go in and try to open a local brokerage, brokerage account, <laughs> the only real way to invest is uh, through an ETF. Um, it's listed in London. Uh, that, that would be like a country level? Uh, yeah. ETF? Right. It's country level. It's, uh, the ticker in London is XBAN. Um, and that's... Uh, you know, in international capitalists, I mostly focus on stocks rather than ETFs because, you know, that's, people aren't all that interested in ETFs. But this is a particular market and, and situation, I think, is, uh, is uh, it's really kind of amazing. That's awesome. Potential there. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for giving us that little nugget. I appreciate that. I think my audience will, will definitely uh, look that one up and, uh, and check it out. Um, so, Kim, it's been, uh, it's been fun uh, catching up. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, I uh, you, I know you you're doing a conference up here in June, so I'll see, I'll be seeing you then. You got any other uh, data points this year uh, that that you are excited about? Um, I'm uh, gonna make a few trips for international international capitalists. I'm gonna go to uh, Uzbekistan, nice, um, which is a country that's that's evolving quickly. And um, uh, no, offhand, Jay, I wish I could tell you something more exciting, but I uh, when I uh, when are you guys opening the international capitalist newsletter for new subscribers that might be interested in after uh, hearing our, our little conversation here? We'll be opening in um, in mid May, and if you go to stansburychurchhouse.com and uh, we have a free daily e letter, um, you'll certainly hear about it there. And now I wish I could give you a better address or a <laughs> URL, but I can't. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, so uh, in addition to Stanzer Research House uh, on, on the website, uh, where else is uh, a good place that people can find you and connect with you? I don't know if you're on any of the social stuff or, or, um, or not, but uh, um, is, is that the website that is the best place? Or? The website is the best place. Yep. Okay, got it. Well, cool. Um, thanks for coming on, Kim. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to uh, to obviously seeing you up here in Hong Kong and, and hearing about your your next international capitalist trip. And uh, we'll certainly uh, link up the website uh, for our listeners so they can sign up for the free daily newsletter and um, and basically just uh, keep an eye out on when you guys open uh, launch your uh, or open up the card again. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me on, Jay. All right. Great. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week.
This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.